All right, let's get started here. It is good to see you and have you back. Bibles in hand. We are ready to settle down. It is Passion Week. We are picking up in Matthew 21 where we uh, left off last time. Uh, we are just from this passage a couple days out from Good Friday and things are heating up as you're about to see. Now, Father God, as the tension rises between our Lord and his opponents, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the priests there in the temple, we pray that you would give us ears to hear the message, God. It's actually a harsh story that Jesus tells, but it's truth, and that truth sets our hearts free. And for Christians, it's quite encouraging. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, you know the saying, if at first you don't succeed, you've heard it. Very good. That's right. Try, try again. And the more important the matter, the more persistent the trying, right? And that's what's going on here in Matthew 21. The Lord keeps right at it, trying to get through to these religious opponents who continue to harden their hearts and become hostile to his message and him. They reject him and that soul-saving message. And consequently, they're headed for destruction and something the Lord wants to see avoided. For over three years, three and a half years, really, since he began his ministry, these um, corrupt authorities have felt threatened by him, and they follow him around like a little bit of uh, agitated lap dogs, you know, yipping and nipping at his heels, following them throughout the countryside there in Galilee, all throughout the region, accusing and detracting, slandering, arguing, trying to distract people, trying to intimidate them. Uh, they're proud and they're self-righteous men. They don't feel like repenting because they think they're good people. And they love their lavish lifestyles and their corrupt power, bossing everybody around. And uh, so they have no interest in hearing anything Jesus has to say because he's a threat to everything they hold dear. And what they hold dear is not good at all. And so they do everything in their power to oppose him, as we'll see uh, once again this morning. And they're very unsuccessful, and that's what's making them so desperate. The blind see, the dead are raised, the gospel is preached, and lives are being transformed. And what's more, Jesus now has reached his goal there on Passover week, the reason for which he came down from heaven, his words in John chapter 6, to do the will of his Father and offer his life as a ransom payment <laughs> For us, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, as John the Baptist introduced him. And the Lamb of God, of course, must die on Friday, Passover, so that whosoever believes in him, death would pass over, and they would not perish but have everlasting life. And so we pick back up here. As I've been promising, we're going to finish Matthew 21 with Jesus' parable, which is called the parable of the tenants or the parable of the wicked farmers, the farmer slash tenant 
they are paying rent, and we're going to see uh, that beautiful story. Things have become uh, red hot on uh, the day after Palm Sunday when he's in the temple turning over things. They say, who gives you the right to ride into the city, proclaim yourself as the divine Messiah, come in here and take over the place, kick people out, turn over benches. Who do you think you are? And in fact, he'd been telling them all along. Uh, John chapter 10 says this, very interesting. The leaders gather around him, that's them, earlier, and said, and demanded, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. Quote, I already told you, but you didn't believe. The miracles I do in my Father's name testify on my behalf. In other words, <laughs> I'm claiming to be the divine Messiah, and I've got the deeds to back it up, doing the things that only God can do. So here we are at in Passion Week, Holy Week. Uh, it's last call. So, you know, Jesus has tried everything with them. Gentle invitations, come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I'll give you rest. He's tried the gentle, soft knock at the door, and now, you know, it's time to crank up the volume uh, because they are uh, digging in their heels and hardening their hearts, as I've said, and it's time to turn up the heat. In effect, Jesus is going to say now, he's going to tell them a parable. It's a teaching story. It's just an allegory, a metaphor to help them understand what's going on. I've got a story for you, gentlemen, and it's not for the faint of heart. But perhaps you'll find yourself in the story and let the shock and the horror of it uh, help you to avoid a similar fate. Here's the story he told them. Listen to another story. I've got a little illustration for you. Okay, there's this landowner. Plants a vineyard, put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. And then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them more than the first time. And the tenants treated them the same exact way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. Oh, they'll respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir, come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, got a question for you. What will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, well, have you ever read the scriptures? Being sarcastic, because this is a holiday song. They sing it every year. As they go up to Jerusalem, it's the psalm they sing. <laughs> and they had just sung it two days earlier. So have you ever <laughs> heard of the verse in Psalm 8, 118, verse 22? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, the foundation stone. 
the Lord has done this, and that's marvelous in our eyes. Then the application, therefore I tell you, it's going to be exactly as you said, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. He, will, he who falls on this stone, me, will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, plural now, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because of the people they held that he was a prophet. I'm interested already afresh and anew with they realize they're the bad guys in the story and the doom that awaits them. Therefore, they want to kill him, want to arrest him. It might have been nice to hear, therefore, they repented and uh, in light of all the miracles as well. And so that, those are the words for our reflection this morning. It's not a pretty story, uh, but it's one that could save your soul if you're one of those crazed tenants Jesus is talking about. And that's really the bottom line for Jesus. You know, maybe slap him up a little bit and say, hey, come on, smelling salts here. You know, wake up. Oh, sleeper, rise from the dead and Christ will shine upon you. That was an early hymn that the early Christians used to sing, quoted in Ephesians 5, by the way. So this is a fitting uh, passage for Palm Sunday. It's triumphal entry time. You know, it is encouraging. The king, from our point of view, it's a very encouraging parable, right? The king comes first to conquer death and provide uh, salvation. And after that, the king comes triumphantly again, a second time, to judge the wicked tenants. To all who have abused uh, God's people and done evil, to bring justice and establish his kingdom uh, to be a place where only goodness dwells. So if you're weary of a world that's evil and hates truth and hates the Lord and doesn't really think much of Christians either, the oppression, the lies, the falsehoods, the deception, then this parable's for you because there's a promise of hope. Remember the prayer, thy kingdom come? Well, his kingdom's coming, and that's what the parable's about. And if you're surrendered and you're trying and, and you've given him your heart and you're in the vineyard doing what you're supposed to be doing, then you've got nothing to fear and that you're happy when the king comes to make things right and good the way he's uh, intended it to be. So really the bottom line for them is he's saying, listen, long story short, <laughs> What you're planning to do to me, I've laid it out for you. You are the villains in the story. Divine retribution's coming. Watch out for falling rock. <laughs> it's right over your head, uh, but there's still time to move out of the way or be dashed to pieces. Your choice. Move out of the way or be dashed to pieces. Wow. So like I said, you know, truth can knock softly at the door or it could be more like a battering ram. And uh, this parable of the wicked tenants is more like a battering ram. I'm wondering, I have written down here, I wonder how many of you came 
because you opened the door to a gentle knock. That's how you came to the Lord. It was more of a gentle voice, a warm summer breeze. How many of you needed a bit of the battering ram? Whoa, you guys are sinners. (laughs) (laughs) I needed like 10 battering rams, but uh, it worked. Amen. That's the important part. Okay, the parable. Jesus' little story divides quite nicely, as I like to say. Note-takers number one is the parable itself. Um, We'll take a look at that. Verses 33 to 39, I'm calling that the nightmare tenants. Uh, And then the second uh, paragraph, we see the Lord's righteous fury. The Lord's, uh, the landlord's indignation. Verses 40 to 42, note-takers. And then uh, 43 through 46 is an application. And the last two paragraphs are are just kind of the the wrap-up, the crux of the message is the parable which is appearing. Uh, Well, no, before you get to the parable Jesus tells, you need framework. You need to know what first century Jewish people in the crowd knew. This was not a new parable. Jesus is building on an old one. Here's the one that everyone in the crowd knew. So they knew what, who was who in the story. Here we go. Isaiah chapter 5. Now here's a little sonnet about my beloved the Lord, Isaiah speaking, and his vineyard which will be Israel. My beloved Lord had a vineyard on a rich and fertile hill. He plowed the land, cleared its stones, and planted it with the best vines. In the middle, he built a watchtower, sound familiar, and carved a wine press in the nearby rocks. Then he waited for a harvest of sweet grapes, but the grapes that grew were bitter, and the word in Hebrew for bitter means stink fruit. And I thought you would appreciate that, because I was cracking up in the office reading that. Now the Lord's speaking. Now you people of Jerusalem and Judah, you judge between me and my vineyard, between me and you. <laughs> what more could have I done for my vineyard that I have not already done? When I expected sweet grapes, why did my vineyard, my people, my tenants, the leaders, give me bitter grapes? Now let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. Same parable. I will tear down its hedges and let it be destroyed. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel. Check. And the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice but saw bloodshed for righteousness but heard crisis. Cry, cries, I should say, of distress. And so there you have have it. Jesus not telling a new story. He's not reinventing the wheel. He's building on a well-known allegory. Note takers, Jeremiah 2 and Ezekiel 15 have the same kind of imagery there, by the way. Uh, So the crowd's familiar. They all have a good idea of what things stand for what truths. And so I've got a cheat sheet for you uh, that they would all know. The landowner is God, of course. The vineyard is Israel. The tenants, Israel's leaders. The fruit, a right life for, for God. Ministry that's good and I'm filled with truth and good deeds and training people up and all of that. The servants sent are the prophets who come 
to the tenants, the message from the landowner, the son, of course, the only begotten of God, and he has a dual uh, role in this parable. He is also the cornerstone, the foundation of life. So there you go. So here's what Jesus is doing. He's fast-forwarding the parable. They've got the idea there, and he's going to bring it current to where God's son is entered the vineyard. So he's going to kind of fast-forward it a thousand years from Isaiah's time, boom, to where the son is standing uh, in the vineyard trying to reconcile with the crazy tenants. And so here we go. Here's the parable up and running now. This is the story he tells here. It's 911 time, and he's brought out the, the paddles, as I've been saying, and he's put it to their chest and said, clear, and jolted them with a thousand jolts, a thousand bolts, I should say, of uh, raw truth. Maybe that'll get a pulse here. And so uh, point number one, the nightmare tenants, I thought of calling them something else, uh, the tenants from hell, uh, but Barb advised me it's a little too strong of language, uh, so I won't. <clears throat> <laughs> Let's call them the tenants from down under, all right? Way under, <laughs> way deeper than Australia. All right, uh, Jesus introduces the parable with an invitation to listen. Those are non empty words, they're this, his heart cry. Come on, guys. Let's clear up the fog. Last call. We're getting close. You've seen three and a half years of miracles. You've heard the unfiltered voice of God audibly. Come on, and you're still resisting. This is not good. Put on your thinking caps, man. Open up your ears. And this is why I say, if at first you don't succeed, he's still trying. To his last breath, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He does not will that any perish, but that all come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, right there. He does not will that anybody perish, <laughs> not even the bad guys. <clears throat> so one uh, writer said, he who told us to love our enemies loves his enemies. And this story is meant to, in a loving way, save whosoever hears and believes, though murder is in their hearts. So yes, indeed, he says, listen to me. Wake up, sleeper. Rise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. Listen, nobody will perish and then ever get to say, I was never warned. He just is so good about that. Everybody will have been warned. The story begins in verse 33 with a landowner, a man of means, and I'll say... Because ultimately, the landowner is God. Now, uh, there in Israel, in ancient times, it was not uncommon for those who owned big chunks of property that were just sitting idle to want to turn that into an investment um, such as a, a winery or a vineyard. And the land would be productive. There'd be some good to everybody involved. The tenants, uh, the, the owner, the community, the workers, 
It's, it would just be a good thing. And so here, the vineyard, the story, of course, is located in Jerusalem, and Jesus, um, and the, and 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 Jesus is telling the story for them to see themselves in the story. The landowner, he says in verse 34, gets everything ready, and it's a considerable investment. You see. Uh, land is cleared and soil is properly prepared and a list of hundreds of things. But he lists uh, fencing it off, building a wall to protect from wild animals, uh, digging a wine press. And what that was, uh, they would dig out a rock, um, two basins, one higher than the other. They'd crush the grapes in the higher one. There'd be a channel which the juice would flow through that channel into the lower Basin, and so that was a considerable, considerable task there. And he built a watchtower to survey the property at a glance and keep a watchful eye on things. And now he needs workers in 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 verse 34, and so uh, he expects the workers to run the operation the way he wants it to go. Right, and so, and he expects a return for his investment uh, in the form of what you would you could call it rent or a portion of the crops, and in return for their hard work, uh, usually back in Israel, back in the day, they would receive two thirds of the profit, the revenue, and the owner would get one third. Now, the spiritual application, of course, is God is the landowner, and he owns the world, and his piece of property would be called the earth. Psalm 29 and verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the people and everyone who lives in it belong to the Lord, along with the entire planet, Psalm 29 and 1. So he sees the planet in need. So he's going to start a family business. He's going to call it the promised land wineries or whatever, right? And so he plants a vineyard in this little tiny speck of a place on the planet so that from that vineyard, the vines would grow out with the fruit of life and that the vineyard would be a cause of hope for the nations. And so, you know, he did some hard work, didn't he? He cleared the land, didn't he? He evicted <laughs> the debris of the Canaanites, who were the most wicked people on the planet, so says the Lord. He tilled that soil. Yeah, I'll say. He made the promised land just so prolific and, and so fertile, a land flowing with milk and honey and fruit trees. And, and then when, the, when, the, when the spies went into the promised land to scout out the land, they said, we cut off one cluster of grapes and we hung it on a pole and it took two guys to carry. He said, this place is crazy fertile. And, you know, the Lord nurtured the vineyard for 500 years he leased it out to tenants that they would be a blessing to the entire earth. So this is the back to the story. Come harvest time, the landlord is expecting a payment, uh, some return, not in shekels or in grapes or in boxes of raisins, right? But in good works and service to God, that they would hold out the word of life 
that they would model and teach the word of God, how to know God, how to please him, and to teach his people what's right. The vineyard was a place to be filled with good fruit that he could come and and, and, and enjoy people doing good deeds, helping the needy, forgiving one another, hating evil, clinging to what was good, standing up for the oppressed, building people up, encouraging the weak, pointing souls to life, singing praises to God, and loving the owner, not running from him or grieving him, yielding their lives to him. This is the fruit that the landowner wants from his vineyards. He comes looking for the rent. He has done a lot of prep work to make the vineyard (laughs) viable and fruitful and productive. So once in a while he comes calling and says, how are we doing? And all he got there was a bunch of, in the Hebrew, stink berries stink berries. So, yeah, he started sending prophets to collect the rent or to bring a word of correction to the tenants who were defaulting on their side of the agreement. And so Promised Land Vineyards was established in 1400 B.C., about 400 years of God nurturing those vines and coming up with nothing but stink fruit, he began at around 1,000 B.C. to send prophets to those nasty kings, the tenants. Israel had a good king, David, and then Solomon, and then it went downhill. And there were about 20 more in Israel and in Judah, and all but eight of those 50 kings were evil. So the prophets start at around Solomon's time at 900 uh, years out from uh, Christ. And this is the period of time the Lord is saying, so he sent his servants who are the prophets. And in short, these crazed tenants want the vineyard to themselves. They want the blessing. They want to make the money. They want to enjoy the fruit without the owner. (laughs) They want to enjoy life without the life giver. Sound familiar? (laughs) It's the way all sinners are. They all, I do their funerals, some of them, and everybody ends up in heaven. Only don't they realize who's there? It's Jesus is there. It's Jesus' heaven. Why would he want to be in that heaven? He didn't like God or the Bible or or think too much of Christians. But suddenly when you die, everybody wants to be there. Only hopefully, no Jesus is there. No conservative Christians are there because we hate them. Well, surprise. You wouldn't like heaven very much. Because he's there, the owner of the vineyard. Yeah, so they just want to run the place unethically, make excessive profits, rip people off, and woe to anyone who tries to interfere, even the owner himself. And let him send whoever he wants. We'll show the owner what we think of him. And so he goes on with the abuse there, 35 and 36. Follow me along here. Uh, they They beat some of the messengers. 
Well, uh, Mark 12, in his version of this story, says they bludgeoned some of them on their heads. So maybe the Lord is citing prophet Amos, who showed up and said, hey, thus said the landowner, what's up with the stink fruit? So when he went into the vineyard in the Bible, Amos, he got clubbed on the head, murdered in the vineyard. So Jesus says, and they killed some. Uh, thinking how maybe uh, how they saw they sawed Isaiah in two pieces. Why? Because Isaiah went in and said, thus says the landowner, where's the fruit? Where's the rent? What are you guys doing here? I, I, he sent me. You know, and I got a message for you, quoting Isaiah. What sorrow awaits you guys? You feed yourself instead of the flock. Shouldn't shepherds feed the sheep? You drink the milk, you wear the wool, you butcher the best animals, but you let your flock starve. You've not taken care of the weak. You have not tended the sick or bound up the injured. You have not gone looking for those who have wandered away and who are lost. Instead, you've ruled them with harshness and cruelty. Therefore, you tenants... Thus says the landowner, who I represent. Hear the word of the Lord, the landlord. <laughs> I now consider these shepherd tenants my enemies, and I will hold them personally responsible for what has happened to my flock. I'll take their, the right to feed the flock away from them. I'll stop them dead in their tracks. I will rescue my flock from their mouths, and the sheep will no longer be their prey. So they cut him in half. This is what Jesus is saying. I sent my guys to you to say, hey, pay up, man. I've done a lot. I've invested a lot. I'm waiting. You guys are benefiting. What about me and my purposes and my intention for my property? A shout out. And there's the verse. The verse that blows my mind is 36. After he says they beat one, killed another, and stoned a third, then he sent others, other servants. More than the first time, he just keeps sending them. Now this is where our ways part forever with God's ways, which are higher than our ways. This is a shout out to God's magnanimous mercy and grace and patience. Here's what the Lord says of the Lord. He says, the Lord, the Lord a God merciful and gracious beyond your wildest expectations. <laughs> Slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Exodus 34. So we, we rightly so, would not keep sending people into harm's way. But what's God doing? He's keep, he keeps holding out for hope that somebody is going to hear and repent, and some of them do. Maybe not the whole vineyard, but a few of the workers see the light, hear the servant Isaiah, and will be in heaven because of Isaiah. And many brave people who said, you know what, I'm going into hostile vineyard territory where they don't want to hear from the landowner even though they're drinking down his blessings. And at my own cost and peril to my own life and my own position at work and my own popularity, my own reputation, I'm going to tell them the, the hard truth. Hey, what's up? And some of them repent. And some will be in heaven because somebody was brave enough 
to say the unpopular thing in a hostile environment and take it on the head or wherever. And a lot of people have been murdered. Millions, millions of us in heaven. Millions. You will see millions of people with a martyr's crown because they gave up their life unto death. Man, that's crazy. So Jesus says, okay, the son's in the, in the vineyard, verse 37. Let's bring Isaiah's parable up to speed. And they all know that Jesus has claimed himself to be the son of God. They know it. So when he says, and now the son's here, they kind of get the picture. Uh, not at first, but they will. You know in Mark chapter 14 during the trial on... Uh, Thursday night or Friday morning, the early morning hours there, Caiaphas will say, I charge you in the presence of God Almighty, are you the son, as you say, are you the son of the living God? And Jesus says, I am. And you will see me coming in the clouds with great glory one day with the power of God Almighty. That's pretty amazing stuff there. And so finally, verse 37, at the end of this pathetic ordeal, Jesus goes on to say he sends his son. So the owner, and Jesus says, maybe the owner's just thinking, you know, okay, it's one thing to send mere mortals, but it's another thing to to send the son, you know, if we take it for the meaning, the spiritual application. Uh, The son's a whole other thing than just sending regular employees, So here comes the sun down that long dirt road with all those pretty flowers along the vineyard. You know how they do that. And uh, the men in the story, the tenants, the wicked ones, they recognize, hey, that's his son. It looks just like him. Oh, my word. And they think the owner has died. And now the heir is coming, and the only thing that stands between them and taking possession is that man, that young man. The son. Once he's out of the way, <laughs> you know, possession is nine tenths of the law, <laughs> meaning it's it's harder to prove that the thing is yours if you're not in possession of it. But if you're in possession of it, you know, uh, no one can really contest that very well. And so they're like, let's get rid of him. And by the way, back in the day, the law was if you didn't pay rent for three years and you could prove that the owner is an absentee owner and he is an absentee landlord and he's not interested in the property and he's let it go, go, go to pot and, and, and all of this, uh, then you could rightfully say he's not interested. We've reached out to him. We have no records of paying anything to him. He never sends anything. Oh, uh, yes, we've killed a few people that claim to come from him, but they were robbers and thieves. It was self protection. And so let's get rid of him. And then who's going to write to the land? It'll be ours, all ours. And uh, that's what they're after. What makes it all so reprehensible beyond? words is the son doesn't come with a gun after all that the son comes with a gift for these killers he he doesn't ride in on a war horse after all of that he comes in on a donkey humble saying hey come to me you're weary heavy burden i'll give you rest And they seize him 
as they will seize Jesus in 48 hours. They take him outside the vineyard as they will lead Christ outside the gates of Jerusalem in keeping with the truth of the parable and the prophecies. They will execute the Son of God according to God's plan. The heir of all things. Verse 40, we're going to move from the tenants down under to the benevolent landlord's rage. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, he's trapping them. He's entrapping them. What are you guys? How would you write the story? How should the story end? And they get all righteously indignant and say, he's going to bring those bad people to a bad end. That's what they say. And he's going to get rid of them and find some good tenants for a change. And Jesus says, correct. (laughs) And so let's talk about this now, the landlord's outrage. Well, we're going to see really the point here is that the owner's wrath is justified and right by whatever means and however horrible the fate of these wicked people is. Justice must prevail and it's a good thing and everyone will be in agreement, even the perpetrators. Because out of the mouths of the ones who have done the the deed and will do the deed and who are related to those who have done the deed through the centuries, they will say, those are wretched people and they need to be destroyed in a wretched way. Get rid of them from the mouth of the criminal. You see how beautiful that is? Jesus set the bait. They bite down. The veins are popping. The hearts are pounding. You know what it reminds me of? When David committed adultery with Bathsheba, he went nine or ten months hiding that whole thing. And then Nathan came to him and said, let me tell you a story. Love the story. There's this guy. He was so filthy rich. He didn't even know what to do with his money. You know, he had all the lambs he could ever have. And then there was this little couple, poor, and they had this little baby lamb, and they loved that little baby lamb, and they named it, and the little baby, they fed it at the table, and they it slept in their bed and in the arms. And the rich guy who could have had any lamb in the entire universe goes in and rips the lamb out of their arms and slits its throat and serves himself up like a lamb. And David says, he needs to die. And Nathan says, well, get ready to die because you're the man. You did that. You went in to Uriah's little lamb in Uriah's life. Now our sins look terrible on other people. So the Pharisees think that they're the good guys in the story. In fact, where God's place is, the Pharisees put themselves because that's the problem with them. Whenever they hear one of Jesus' parables, they put themselves at the head of the table where where God belongs. That's why they can never understand them because truth is upside down to them. So when they hear the story, they're the wealthy landowner, not God you see. And so at this point, they don't know it's them. They will in one more paragraph, but they don't get it right now. 
So they're caught up in the Son of God's ability to tell a story. He is the Word, after all. He's really good at stories. And, and he's God. So he's pausing, and he's using tone, and he's painting pictures, and everybody's on their every, uh, on his every word, and before they know it, he says, what do you think? I, and they can't contain themselves. Away with those wretches. Correct. He goes, I've got a scripture for you. Let's talk about <laughs> the, the uh, cornerstone. And, you know, one last thing about that that they understand the guiltiness of their own soul and that they're in agreement that they should be uh, punished severely at the great white throne. When all of the guilty, wretched tenants from the beginning of time who have denied rent to the God who gave them life stand before him, there will not be one tear shed by anybody here watching the scene. They'll be shedding tears, but we'll be shouting for joy, and we will be glad to see them go. That's the meaning here, that even they who stand before the great white throne will be in agreement. Okay, so the rock, he says, now how do we make a connection really quick here? How do we go from the allegory of vineyards and grapes and landowners to where did this rock come from? Ah, I'm glad you asked that. Because in Isaiah 5, the original parable has an allusion to clearing out the rocks to make the vineyard. And so this is in their mind. And so he says, and by the way, have you ever read in the, the uh, Psalm, Psalm 118, that the stone the builders of the vineyard rejected has become a very important stone. So they all know that the, the previous parable has the removal of stone. And they make the connection. Whoops, the builders of this vineyard have removed what they think is a stone of impediment. When they get rid of the stone, they find out, whoops, he's the foundation of life. And anybody who has Christ in their life, they build their house on the foundation rock and can never be moved, not even death itself. But if you resist the foundation stone, it comes upon you. Now, look at the last paragraph here, the application, because it's very hopeful, even though the strong words here he says, okay, so the kingdom of God, like you guys said, will be taken away from you and given to people like Peter, James, and John because I'm starting something called the church. And upon the statement that Peter made, that Jesus Christ, that I am the son of the living God, upon that rock that I am who I say I am, he will build this called out ones, the gathering, the church. See, and then it won't be a localized <laughs> vineyard. It'll be an international affair. And everywhere there's local <laughs> assemblies of Christians, you have a vineyard. In fact, you could say that every believer is a vineyard. And that because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, that everywhere we go, <laughs> we're working for him. We're going about our secular lives but with the overarching theme that I'm a tenant of the Lord, this is his earth, and I'm doing my work 
for my employer or doing my secular thing with the purpose of making a difference for the landowner of the earth, you see. And so he's going to give it to us, the church, until the fullness of the church comes in. Romans chapter 11 says, one day the last sinner's prayer will be prayed by a non-Jewish person, like in a church like this. Somebody's going to give their heart to the Lord, and it's going to be the last one. God has got a number. When he reaches his number, boom, the church age is over. The church is removed into heaven to escape the wrath of God. And then God starts dealing with the original vineyard. And he wants to establish that original vineyard in Israel for the blessing of the millennial kingdom, which says that they will be a blessing as a Christian nation. And right at the point when the Antichrist thinks that he's going to destroy Israel and the armies gather there in Armageddon, they turn to the landowner and they cry out for the landowner's son to rescue. And they receive him and they turn and the vineyard is reestablished Promised land vineyards up and running again to bless the world. Now, as we close out here, what I said was encouraging. One commentator, I think it was F.V. Meyer, who said, look at the hope there. He said, he who stumbles, the word there is to trip over. He who, 44, he who stumbles on this stone will be broken to pieces. That's no fun. But F.V. Meyer said, but you can be healed. So if you trip over the gospel, it's, a, it's terrible, you know? And if you stumble over Jesus, uh, you'll be broken, but you can be mended. But if you die in your sins and you reject him until your last breath, then the stone, it, it, it falls on you and you, you will be destroyed. Those are hard words. A lot of people don't use them anymore. But when you preach verse by verse through the Bible, you have to tell the truth. And the truth is what sets people free. Do you know, like, how many of you, you raised your hands when I said the gentle breeze approach and the Lord was playing a violin. Then, oh, I love you so much. You're coming to know me. And you all went, oh, no. I saw three hands. And then when I said battering ram, you're like, whoa. <laughs> yeah, the battering ram. So we don't despise hard truth. It sets people free. And it tells it the way it is. And so, yeah, I really wanted them to repent when they heard this, but they're digging their heels in. They figured out, hey, he's talking about us. We're the bad guys in the story. Let's kill them. Oh, dude, did you not hear the story? Now you're going to do the, the very thing that he said you're going to do, and then you have an option to surrender or to stay resisting. Let's pray together. Oh, Father God, we see ourselves in the story. We, you, you've made us tenants and you've made us good in that you died for us and put a new spirit in us, but still we see some areas that need healing and more consistency. Father God, help us, because uh, we've got a little bit of stink fruit sometimes and uh, we need... Uh, help to be productive and effective and just be the kinds of tenants that gives gives you pleasure, God, and not uh, heartburn. In Jesus' name, amen. 
You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.